The perfect introduction to our program tonight was, in fact, written by our indefatigable producer, Maggie Burnt. I read from uh, our uh, program guide tonight on Extension 720. Robert Frost once defined a jury as, quote, 12 persons chosen to decide who has the better lawyer. I do like that very much. Uh, but what makes a lawyer successful? Tonight we will talk with uh, three legal experts, in fact, three expert lawyers, who will detail some of their winning and some of their losing strategies in court. And who are those three? They are, to begin with, an old friend, Steve Lubet, who is professor of law at Northwestern, director there of the program on advocacy and professionalism. He's done a vast amount of writing in the law, much of it technical, but he's just done a wonderful book available to all ordinary, ordinary readers. The Lawyers Would Surely Profit. It is titled Lawyers Poker, 52 Lessons That Lawyers Can Learn from Card Players. And we'll look at that parallel, uh, those two parallel fields of strategic exertion, poker and the law. Uh, our other two guests are Chris Lind, who's a partner in a major law firm here in town, Barlett, Beck, Herman, Palanchar, and Scott. Sounds like a law firm, in fact. Uh, and Chris, uh, at some point, worked for the United States Department of Justice in their antitrust division, where he worked particularly on the government's case against Microsoft. And our third guest, just up from Houston, so to speak, is Sean Berkowitz, who is assistant U.S. attorney, serving under Patrick Fitzgerald uh, here in the Northern District, and director of the Justice Department's Enron Task Force. He was indeed the lead prosecutor uh, in that case, uh, on which guilty verdicts were delivered only about a month or a bit more ago. And as we know, one of the two leading uh, defendants, convicted defendants, uh, died suddenly just about a week ago uh, at a vacation home in Aspen. Uh, let's plunge right into this. I want to go directly to Steve's book. Uh, you draw many lessons from poker that you think can be well applied to the craft of uh, of lawyerly comportment, whether in court or in uh, negotiations so that you don't have to go to court. Give me three or four. Give me one of them to begin with, and let's see what sense our other two guests can make of it, whether they can illustrate your recommendation from their case experience. Sure. In poker, players are always looking what they call pot odds. And that means they're constantly calculating the amount of money in the pot against the likelihood of success on a particular hand. Mm -hmm. you now, that provides them with a really important lesson, which is that you don't have to win the individual hand in order to make it worth play, playing. If the payoff is six to one, and the odds of success are five to one, they, they call that a positive expectation. They go ahead and make the play, even though, though they're going to lose it five out of every six times, because it's really going to pay off heavily the sixth time. Now, lawyers can learn the same lesson, uh, for example, in asking a question on cross-examination. If the payoff is terrific and the downside is small, you can go ahead and ask the question, even though it might not succeed. And that's different than the lesson we usually learn, but it's an important lesson you can pick up from poker. Illustrate that for me. I'm a, an accountant who's be accused of filching half a million dollars from his firm. My defense is, no, I didn't. I merely borrowed it uh, to uh, uh, help my church mount a particular uh, social work program that required a good deal of initial investment, but I was certainly going to return it. And I'm going to cross-examine you without knowing the answer to the question, yep. which is usually thought to be 
something you would never do in law. So I get a great idea. I'm going to say, Mr. Accountant, isn't it true that you were stealing that money in order to finance an illicit affair? And you would say, absolutely not. You'd be indignant. Uh, the judge would yell for, at me. It was for my church, sir. It was I for my right, and that would be a losing question because yeah. the downside, embarrassing me, outraging the judge, would be worse than any possible mm -hmm. uh, payoff. On the other hand, if I said to you, uh, well, Mr. Accountant, uh, isn't it true uh, that you took that money knowing that you had no right to it? Again, I don't know what you're going to say, but the possible answers, yes, I did, or no, I didn't, both hurt you, and they both helped me, so the question has a positive expectation. Uh -huh. Does that uh, rule apply in the recent trial experience of our other two guests? Uh, yeah, it it definitely applies. I mean, there were several examples of people asking questions that they shouldn't have asked or that you asked and there wasn't a downside in the, to. In the Enron case? In the Enron case, for example, and I'll try and uh, point to mistakes by my opponents rather than by myself uh -huh. to start out with, but uh, many of our cooperating witnesses testified about some arcane uh, accounting issues, and one of the refrains from the defense lawyers, uh, at least with the first couple of witnesses, was, you're not an accountant, are you, sir? And in fact, two of the witnesses that they asked that question to were, in fact, accountants, and it came back to, to sting the defense lawyers for well, asking those really questions. That's really bad preparation on the part of the lawyer. It is bad preparation. It's not something, they weren't testifying as accountants, they weren't testifying um, based on that knowledge, but they hadn't done their homework and hadn't looked into that issue, and they stopped asking that question after the first couple of times. Uh, with respect to questions that we asked that we didn't know the answer to, and in criminal cases, the situation is somewhat different than in civil cases. You don't have the same amount of discovery or depositions that you would have in a civil case as you do in a criminal case. Several experts testified, uh, and anyone who was involved in, in the Enron litigation knows that there was a lot of money spent on, on both sides, and the experts in that case we presumed were well paid, but we didn't know. Uh, we asked an expert from USC who testified to the fact that what Mr. Lay did was perfectly appropriate, uh, how much he was being paid for his testimony. A fairly safe question. Uh, we were shocked to hear the answer, which was, I'm not being paid for my testimony. In fact, um, Mr. Lay has no money left, and I am doing this because it's an important case and it's an important principle, and I believe in it. And at that point, there's a, a kind of a stunned silence, but you follow up and say, well, sir, are you saying you never received any money as a result of your work on this behalf? And he said, well, I have received some. And the question is then, how much did you receive before your testimony? And the answer was a million dollars. So that's, that salvages it for it you. It salvages it greatly and, and totally hurts the credibility. So I suddenly am remembering, a, a, this is a matter of personal memory, years ago when I was a graduate student, uh, a more senior graduate student was giving a lecture uh, and uh, it had to do with racial prejudice and things of that sort. And a black guy in the audience uh, got angry and shouted out, yeah, but you wouldn't let your sister marry a black man, would you? To which he responded, well, she did. <laughs> That's a very, no, you wouldn't expect this guy to look up the man who's giving the speech, but it's the same sort of 
effect, isn't it? it? It is, except that's the question that has a big downside, and you wouldn't ask that question. I mean, the, the you wouldn't key, in court. I, you, you would not in court. And, yeah. the, and the key to what Steve said about the pot odds issue is you have to know what the odds are. And the example that he gave was a situation where you know the lawyers always say, don't ask a question you don't know the answer to. And we have a variation on that, which is don't ask a question you don't know the answer to or you don't care what the answer is, mm -hmm. in which case the downside is very low. And, and, and for instance, the example Steve gave about the accountant and asking the question, you didn't have the right to that money or did you take that money having the right to that money is a kind of question where regardless what he says, uh, yes or no, you don't know which way he's going to go, but the answer is good for you either way. I want to come back to Steve Lubet and get another one of his working rules and examine some of the illustrative exemplifications thereof. But first, I offer you no one less than Aristotle making a tragic error or deeply incorrect, I should think, in what he has to say about the law. I wonder if you would agree that he's incorrect or maybe you think he's right. He says quite simply, the law is reason free from passion. There's no passion thus in litigation. Is that true? Well, Oliver Wendell Holmes in our system said the exact opposite. Uh -huh. What did he, he say? The life of the law is not reason, it is experience. It doesn't say it's emotion or passion. Well, it's not reason, so it's not dispassion, yeah. it's experience, and I think passion would be part of experience. But emotion, for passion, read emotion. Emotion and emotion arousal does play a large role in litigation, does it not? It does, and especially even as the lawyer. If you don't believe in your case and show that you believe in your case and show some emotion in the case that you are presenting to the jury or the judge or whoever the fact finder is, nobody's going to believe you. Because if you're not passionate about it, they have no how reason How does that to be. work for experienced criminal lawyers who take people who are up on high felony crimes? I know, I won't name them at the moment, but I know a major criminal lawyer in town who essentially defends people for murder and rape and things of that sort. And he has said, he's even said on this program, 95% of the time, my clients are as guilty as hell. But I'm there to give them the best and fullest defense that is possible. And he's a very successful lawyer. Well, you, have to, find, you have to find something in the case that you can be passionate about. Rather uh, than the asserted innocence of the client. Sure, it could be the duplicitousness of the adverse witnesses. Uh -huh. So, you know, I might know, or the lawyer might know deep down, that his own client is uh, is is uh, a louse and a, and a scoundrel, but if the prosecution witnesses are lying, some do, Sean, uh, if the prosecution witnesses are lying, then you can become righteously indignant about that. Mm -hmm. And And... I think it's also important to remember that the credibility of witnesses is critical in any trial and their emotion and their passion and how they feel about something really does come across and it is critical. We had uh, a witness, perhaps the the most challenging witness for the prosecution in the Enron case was a guy named Andy Fastow who <laughs> stole money repeatedly from Enron and lined his own pockets and even lied to Ken Lay and Jeff Skilling about it. Uh, and he uh, on some heated cross-examination from a very talented defense lawyer, Daniel Petricelli, uh, held up very, very well and was very emotional and broke down and cried on the stand. And there was a particular exchange that was very, very telling and I think was moving in the eyes of the jury where Petricelli said, sir, you know that when the, the history books are written, your name is going to be on that page. 
of to what happened at Enron. And you want my client's name on that page right beside you. And Mr. Fastell looked him in the eye and said, what I want written on that page is I had the courage and the conviction to stand up and say what I did was wrong, what others did was wrong, and I want to be able to look my family in the eye and tell them that. That was a very passionate, emotional time in the courtroom, and I think it helped his credibility. That also helped your case tremendously, didn't it? Uh, your case was built partly on documents, but also on essentially other colleagues of Lay and Skilling uh, tattling on them. Absolutely, as most criminal cases are based on uh, other insiders who participated in yeah. uh, in the crimes with them, and their credibility is critical, and the, the passion and emotion that they believe really does help show that they are telling the truth, or as, uh, as Mr. Lubet points out, um, it, can, it can also show that they are not being honest. A personal it. question, uh, Sean Berkowitz, uh, inevitable under the circumstances. Uh, how did you feel about a week ago when suddenly we had the news that Ken Lay had died of a massive heart attack? I was sad. I was sad for his family. Um, it was a tragic and untimely death. Uh, but, you know, nothing for me changed the result of, of the trial, that after uh, four months and scores of witnesses on both sides and some of the most talented uh, talented lawyers in the country representing the defendants and both Mr. Lay and Skilling testifying, a uh, jury of 12 people found that the conduct that they had engaged in was criminal. Um, it is unfortunate in, in a number of levels, and I, I feel bad for his family. Um, and uh, as I said, my, my heart goes out to them. You didn't cross-examine in court uh, Ken Lay. Your focus was Jeff Skilling, is that right? That's correct. Yeah. But obviously you were, involved, you were running the case, so you were involved in all the strategy and shaping it. Absolutely, yeah. The strategy was something that the team as a whole worked on uh, for uh, for at least a year, getting ready for the case. And one of the one of the great things about trials is, as these two lawyers next to me know, is that things change throughout the trial that cause that the talented lawyers can make a difference. When surprises happen, when things that you're not expecting go on in the courtroom, it's it's how you react to those things. Some commercials coming, and then back to lawyers poker. Another lesson from that uh, that guide, and we'll. Uh, consider some further illustrations of that lesson. And Steve, you choose the lesson right after these words. And uh, before we return to uh, lawyers' poker, I must um, ask you if you agree with this characterization of your profession. This from the British author John Mortimer, the author of the Rumpole stories, who says, No brilliance is needed in the law, nothing but common sense and relatively clean fingernails. <laughs> That's true as far as it goes, I suppose. You know, well, I, I suppose it is. I mean, common sense is certainly what the jury appeals to. Yeah. So if you can convey common sense, even if you need some brilliance to do that, uh, I think that's accurate. Uh, and with kind of the, with the use of technology today, uh, you can actually have dirty fingernails end up on a big screen in front of a courtroom if you're using something called the Elmo, which Sean used at trial and I've used at trial, which is basically an overhead projector where people put up documents uh -huh. and you want clean fingernails as a real-life example. In fact, Chris teaches a course called Trial Technology at Northwestern. Yeah. And one of the first lessons in the course is get a manicure. So. <laughs> oh, so we're, we, so we chose the right really quotation? Yeah, well, there's some sarcasm, obviously, to that, yeah. but it's happened in, in actual real life. That's wonderful. I imagine you need polished shoes as well. Yeah, well, and juries notice that as well. Sure, they would. And those rumpled stories are fantastic if you read them. They are. They're wonderful stuff. But uh, Clarence Darrow, great Chicago lawyer, was... Uh, Rather rumpled. Speaking of rumpled, he was hard. He may have had dirty fingernails, if that, for that matter. 
Yeah, he he was famous for wearing uh, rumpled suits yeah. and, and and shuffling into the courtroom. His father was a cabinet maker. He was from a working class background, mm-hmm. and uh, although he actually had pretty expensive tastes in his private life, his courtroom persona was absolutely the common man. They've got some quotations from his uh, his cross examination of uh, Bryant in the Scopes trial. What point does that illustrate? What poker point does that illustrate? That, that illustrates the same point we were talking about before, which is the theory of perspective value. That uh, it doesn't matter if you lose the particular interchange if the ultimate mm. payoff is going to be great. Now, in, this, in the Scopes case, which was the case about teaching evolution in, uh, in Tennessee... Uh, this is way back in 1925, I think. 1925, right. It's the 81st anniversary. Mm-hmm. Actually, right now, the case was tried in July. So this is the 81st anniversary. Um, the uh, defense, led by Darrow, had been thwarted by the judge. They wanted to put in all sorts of evidence about the validity of evolution, and the court would not allow their expert witnesses to testify, including several from your former institution, mm-hmm. the University of yeah. Chicago. And so finally, in desperation, uh, Darrow called Bryant to the stand. This, this is true. It's legendary, but it actually happened called him to the stand, and of course he had no preparation, he had no ability to know how Bryant was going to answer any individual question. Should be pointed out that Bryant was a fundamentalist. He believed in the inerrancy of the Bible, and that's what the case was about. Right, and Bryant, of course, was a special prosecutor, yeah. uh, prosecuting John Scopes for uh, teaching evolution in his uh, high school biology class. So uh, Darrow had no way of knowing what the answers were going to be, and on any individual question, he was likely to lose. But the impact of the whole examination was to show the inconsistency of fundamentalism with science. And I quote some of it in the book. I can read it to you. Please do. Darrow, now, Mr. Bryant, have you ever pondered what would have happened to the Earth if it had actually stood still? Answer, no. You have never investigated the subject? I don't think I have ever had the question asked or ever thought of it. I have been too busy on things that I thought were more important than that. Well, what do you think? I do not think about things that I don't think about. Well, do you ever think about the things that you do think about? (laughs) Mr. Bryan, do you believe that the first woman was Eve? Yes. Do you believe she was literally made out of Adam's rib? I do. Did Did you ever discover where Cain got his wife? No, sir. I leave the agnostics to hunt for her. So you see, Brian had a pretty good answer. Uh Darrow comes back. Well, the Bible says he got a wife, doesn't it? Were there other people on earth at that time? And now Brian's in trouble. I I cannot say. There were no others recorded, but Cain got a wife. That is what the Bible says. But of course, it's inconsistent, and that's Darrow's point, and he goes on. I will read to you from the Bible. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, Thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of your life. Do you think that is why the serpent is compelled to crawl upon his belly? Brian, I believe that. Have you any idea how the snake went about before that time? No, sir. Do you know whether he walked on his tail or not? No, sir. I have no way to know. So the Bible can't answer the biological question. It is worth uh, pointing out, is it not, that uh, the jury decided against Scopes? 
The jury decided against Scopes. Darrow lost the case. Yes, actually, he asked them to decide against Scopes. He had no chance of winning. Yeah. Uh, his whole strategy was to uh, take the case to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, but then, actually, in a, uh, in a very slick move, uh, the Tennessee Supreme Court vacated the conviction on a technicality, and the case just fizzled away. And did Scopes go on teaching evolution to his high school class? Uh, Scopes went to law school. Uh-huh. <laughs> Darrow inspired him, obviously. What sort of career did he have beyond that? He he actually didn't practice, did not practice law. I think he went to law school for a year, uh-huh. and then he uh, he went on to work as an engineer. Give us another point. That still illustrates the first point we dealt with. Give us a second major point. Okay. This one is called slow playing, and Chris mm-hmm. knows something about it. Uh, slow playing is, is a poker tactic where you minimize the value of your hand. You've got good cards, mm-hmm. but you play as though they're weak. And the reason you do that is to draw the opposition into the pot. And I, I can illustrate this with a wonderful story about Abraham Lincoln. Who, do, please. As you know, was a splendid trial lawyer uh, before he went into politics. And this is, I don't know how much of this story is true, but it's said to be his first great trial. And he was defending a man who was charged with the crime of atrocious assault, biting off another man's nose. So you've got the witness on the stand, a third-party witness testified to the crime, and Lincoln is cross-examining him, and he says, uh, well, where were they fighting? In the middle of the field. But you were looking at the birds in the trees, weren't you? Yes, I was. And then Lincoln asks what seems like a really stupid question. Mm-hmm. He says, well, how could you see, how can you say that my client bit off the other man's nose. You were looking in the other direction. Answer, because I saw him spit it out. <laughs> right? Now, Lincoln looks like a bumpkin, but he wants to look like a bumpkin because then he says, well, the fight was at night. How could you see so well? And the witness says, by the light of the full moon. And at that moment, Abraham Lincoln pulled out the old farmer's almanac. It was a moonless night. Yeah. The witness was lying. Abraham Lincoln had suckered him into it. Acquittal Fam- for the defense. It's a famous moment. Famous moment. Yeah. Let's see what is equivalent in the uh, trial practices of Chris Lind and Sean Berkowitz. After we take care of a quick stop for the news. Our guests tonight, all of them eminent uh, practitioners of the law, are Sean Berkowitz, assistant U.S. attorney um, in the northern, what do we call it, the northern district of? Northern district of Illinois. Of Illinois. Uh, and that under the... Uh, general guidance of Patrick Fitzgerald, who's had great successes in many, both in Washington and in Chicago lately. Uh, We were just talking last night on this program about the Sorich case and uh, the conviction of those four by friends of yours, obviously. Yeah, the the individuals in the office who who tried the case are friends of mine, and they did a wonderful job. They did indeed. Uh, That's Sean Berkowitz. Chris Lind is partner at the law firm of Barlett Beck, Herman, Palanchar, and Scott. Steve Lubet is professor of law at Northwestern University and the author, probably this is his seventh or ninth book, I don't know, but the author of the book that gives us the basis for our program tonight, Lawyer's Poker, 52 Lessons That Lawyers Can Learn from Card Players. And it's published by Oxford University Press, and obviously you don't have to be a lawyer to enjoy this book. Absolutely not. Just just as you don't have to be Jewish to enjoy Levy's Rye Bread. so suckering them in or drawing them in by your apparent uh, clumsiness is the tactic we're talking about. Chris, can you illustrate that? Sure, and this this is an example that's actually in Steve's book, but it's one from uh, from our firm. We represented uh, President Bush in the election contest in 2000 mm-hmm. when we were counting ballots down in Florida. 
uh, in Gore v. Bush. And one of the issues, as I think everyone will remember, is is these dimpled chads or dented chads, the hanging chads. And Gore had a professor from uh, Yale, a statistician, whose explanation for the undervotes or votes that were not counted for Gore that, that they contended should have been were a result of these chads, these little uh, punch-outs in the ballot, piling up on one side of these voting machines where you punch out. And his theory was that the chads had piled up under where the presidential names were, so that when you tried to go punch your chad through, there was so much chad buildup under there that you couldn't get your poker through, and therefore the chad didn't pop out, and you just dent it instead. And that was the only statistical explanation for why there were so many non-votes or undervotes for president when people had voted for other mm -hmm. uh, offices in the election. Uh, what his opinion was based on was a similar ballot in an earlier election for, I think it was governor, in the state of Florida as well. And his premise was you had a similar correlation between undervotes when the governor's position on the ballots was in the same place. And therefore, the only reason was this Chad buildup. Now, we learned uh, from our statistician who actually went and looked at the comparable ballot, the governor's ballot from the previous election, that the placement of the names was actually different was somewhere else other than what had pres what the statistician for Gore had presumed, and therefore it couldn't have been any explanation. Uh, it became clear that the statistician for Gore had never seen the ballot that he was re relying on, and instead was uh, basing his opinions on something the lawyers told him about his ballot. So uh, we had depositions in the case, so we got some pretrial uh, testimony the day of or the morning of or the day before the actual trial, which was a Saturday morning, uh, I remember. And our young lawyers, who Phil Beck, who, who cross-examined the statistician, sent to take the deposition, were told not to ask one single intelligent question. And if they asked any intelligent question or gave any lead that we knew this about the opinion, that they'd be immediately fired. And these were two U.S. Supreme Court clerks, some of the best lawyers uh, I know, who then went on to take these depositions. What kinds of stupid questions well, did they I, ask? Well, it was challenge. That was probably more of a challenge to come up with stupid questions yeah. than it was. Uh, but I think one of the guys spent about an hour and a half asking Professor, I think it was his name was Hengartner, about the books he used to teach his course in a completely unrelated <laughs> subject. To which the other attorneys in the room, some of them who were on uh, Bush's side. Uh, uh, were flabbergasted and annoyed that he, we wasted, wasted, uh -huh. in quotes, this entire deposition uh, without getting to the meat of it. Well, sure enough, that's the slow pay, play that, that Steve illustrates, which is you know you have a strong hand, or the nuts, as uh -huh. they call it in poker, and instead of uh, playing it out early, at which chance they might have gotten a new declaration, they might have found a new expert, uh, we held all that in reserve. And Phil Beck went on to cross-examine him in, in, in probably the most dramatic point of that trial, asked him something to the effect of uh, he had filed a declaration, the expert had. And he went through the declaration where he said he carefully considered the ballot from the governor's, the earlier governor's election. And, and this is an interesting example of, of the slow play. Phil said, and you carefully considered the ballot. He said, yes, I did. And he asked the same question six different ways, which at the time watching it, you say, why is he doing this? Because all he's doing is eliciting bad testimony over and over and over again. And, of course, it's the slow play, the setup mm -hmm. for the kill, which was the, the question of the punchline. You never considered that ballot closely or otherwise, in which case he didn't. 
and and his whole testimony and expert. This, this was in which phase of it? This was in the before state, which court? In the state court trial before Judge Saul's. Yeah, I remember uh, that. Before the appeal, and then the Florida Supreme Court reversed that ruling. And then it went to the Supreme Court. And then the U.S. Supreme Court, yeah. exactly. But that was crucial to uh, Bush's, in my opinion, unfortunate victory, uh -huh. because if uh, Judge Saul's had ruled for Gore, they would have started counting ballots, and that would have created incredible pressure to go ahead and keep counting them. Uh, once Judge Saul's said, you're not going to count ballots, that created the time jam yeah. that made it, I think, virtually impossible for, uh, for Gore to win, no matter what was going to happen. Stunning legal victory. Sean Berkowitz, can you top that one? Uh, I don't know that I can top that one, but I can certainly give a couple of examples, one where the slow play worked and one where uh, it was kind of a push. Uh, first of all, um, Jeff Skilling, um, when he testified and I cross-examined him, uh, we, I brought him through, uh, to go back a step, I had some evidence that he had engaged in a conflict of interest by investing in a company uh, that um, he had a personal interest in and was having an affair with the owner of the company, which is something that should have been disclosed to Enron. Relatively unrelated, not something that was at issue in the trial at all. Uh, and so I took him through conflict of interest, which was at issue with respect to some of the critical partnerships. And some of our cooperators, such as Andy Fastow and others, had engaged in uh, conflicts of interest with their partnerships. And I got Mr. Skilling to talk about how bad conflicts of interest were, uh, how terrible it was that individuals were engaging in that and violating Enron's code of conduct, and walked him through that and got him to commit to that being a terrible, terrible thing and something that he wouldn't have done. I then shifted topics to this company called Photofet, which had nothing to do with the case. We're going through it, I'm taking him through it, and I show him check after check after check uh, of investment that he made in the company. He had initially estimated he had invested about $20,000 in the company, and I showed him check after check after check that his investment was several hundred thousand dollars. I then got into the fact that he was having a personal relationship with the individual at the company that was doing business with Enron, and he looked me in the eye, and he, in a very frustrated tone, said, Mr. Berkowitz, what does this have to do with fraud at Enron? And I asked him to answer my question, and the judge instructed him to answer the question, and then about a minute later, I showed him Enron's code of conduct and put it up on the board, uh, and he looked at it and he said, oh, now I understand. Um, and I had asked him initially whether the one thing that the people in the jury could count on or could judge him on was his credibility and his word. Uh, and he had to admit that his word, uh, at least with respect to the conflict of interest, wasn't accurate. <clears throat> Um, and it was it was a dramatic moment. The there was another time when uh, I was taking him through something where I had him on tape with some investors talking about a particular uh, situation out in California, the California energy crisis, and I kept trying to get him to commit to certain. Uh, a certain statement that would have been inconsistent with what was on the tape and he danced around it and he danced around it and he didn't know where I was going. He was a very bright man and he was constantly trying to think three steps ahead as any good witness will do and he eventually after about five minutes of questioning on this said oh I know where you're going now you've got a tape on this and, and then he tried to distinguish the issue related to that so if you take too long mm -hmm. in a slow play or make it too obvious a smart witness may get to the punchline before you were trying to steal some of your thunder. And this, of course, according to Steve Lubet's general analysis, is uh, the basic way in which poker and litigation are the same. 
That is, that you are always trying to anticipate what the other guy thinks you're thinking, and you're trying to lead him into thinking uh, what you incorrectly want as to what uh, right. you think, and to, well, getting him to want to think what you want him to, getting him to think what you want him to think. Uh, I met, muddled that up just a bit, but the point is, um, how do we put a generalization on that? Thus, the ultimate nature of the art is misdirection. Misdirection. That is, when you're in poker, they say, when your cards are strong, you want to look weak. Exactly. When your cards are weak, you want to look strong, except that you want to vary it sometimes mm. so that you'll always be unpredictable. Yeah. And and the main thing, of course, is you want to control the opposition. You want to impel them to do what you want so that they make mistakes and you succeed. And, and you want to bluff them as well. You want to be in a situation where, uh, and this happened repeatedly in, in, in most trials, is, is Chris knows you don't ask questions that you don't have a, a know the answer to or something where the answer doesn't hurt you. And the reason that you know the answer is because you've got documents. And so 90% of the questions you ask, you've got a document to show them that uh, that your question is correct. And in that rare case that you ask a question that you think you know the answer to, you may have a document in your hand, and the witness by that time, having been taken through about 20 examples where he denies something, is confronted with a document, doesn't want to be embarrassed again, and will give you an answer that you didn't know. We are late for some commercials, but gentlemen, when we return, I want to tell you about how a former colleague of mine, Richard Christie, a famous social psychologist, uh, undermined the quality of American jurisprudence, particularly of jury trials. We return and get your reaction to what I am hereby about to unfold. We return directly to Steve Lubetsch, Chris Lind, and Sean Berkowitz after this. And we return to Steve Lubetsch, Chris Lind, and Sean Berkowitz, and tales from the courtroom and from negotiation. We haven't talked much about negotiation, but we will, undoubtedly. So who then was this Richard Christie, Dick Christie, that I referred to? He was an eminent social psychologist. He ran the social psychology doctoral program at Columbia University. Uh, he was my senior, but I knew him. And he was the man, as near as we know, who first conceived the notion of polling people in the town where you're running a case to find out and, uh, and polling them on the issues of the case. And of course, classifying the respondents by the usual uh, sociological indicators, uh, sex, race, uh, age, degree of education, religious commitment, and so on. And if you find that Catholics in a given town are more favorable to the case that you are about to prosecute or about to defend, and particularly Catholics uh, of middle age rather than older or younger, and people of only high school education rather than with college education, then when you start selecting the jury, when you do the voir dire, you go after people of that sort. It's an elementary idea. It's been elaborated in terms of technique a great deal, but in terms of methodology, since Christie first formulated it for one or two early cases. This goes back to, I think, the 1950s. But now you all depend upon something like this, don't you? I think we use it a lot. There's a question of whether it's often client-driven versus lawyer-driven. But there is, there is, I should have added, is there not a, uh, an ethical question as to whether it tends to undermine rather than to facilitate the doing of justice? 
Well, I, I don't know that it undermines. I don't think that it undermines the doing of justice. I mean, it depends maybe to some extent on how you're making your calls versus, I mean, you mentioned race, for instance, versus other things like uh, what their voting habits are, where they live and their affluence and things like that over some, some other uh, factors that you mentioned. But A very good case in point, by the way, would be the selection of the jury in the famous case in Los Angeles. The O.J. Simpson, Simpson, Simpson case. More interesting one was the, although it's longer ago, was the John Mitchell trial. He had been mm -hmm. Attorney General of the United States, and then he was prosecuted as part of the Watergate, um, uh, part of the Watergate scandal, and he was acquitted. And I, I think uh, everybody agrees that the jury research uh, led to the acquittal. That the, the defense lawyers in that case did a masterful job. Well, Steve, do you disagree with me that, in a way, that is undermining the operation of the justice system? In a way, I think it is undermining the operation of the justice system. It, 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 it does it in a way for which there's no remedy. I mean, I, I, I don't You think could forbid the practice. Uh, I'm not sure you could for, forbid the practice uh, I'm not consistent sure the result, with the First Amendment. I'm not sure the result would be any different because a lot of the times the results of that type of polling are relatively common sense or intuitive and would have been the same exact mm -hmm. uh, jury picking that, that a, a experienced trial lawyer might have done having no polling based on what you know about human nature. And, and it's worth remembering that you can't pick who's on your jury. You can only pick who's not on your jury. Mm -hmm. They're selected from the voter rolls, and you can identify people who are prejudiced against your case or category uh, of individuals who might be who might be prejudiced against your case, uh, and assuming that they're not protected classes, you can exercise peremptory challenges with respect to those individuals. But more importantly, I think, is it may help individuals decide what themes and what facts to emphasize in a particular case. In any given case, there are hundreds of permutations as to how you may put on your case, and in polling you may find that certain things resonate more than others, and you can emphasize certain points. And I think that that's something that, as Chris points out, is much better from a common sense, lawyer, intuitive standpoint than social, uh, social research necessarily. But was, any, was any such background research done in advance of the case, the Enron case down in Houston? I'm not, I'm not at liberty to say what we, what we did or didn't do, but I think it's fair to say that in high-profile cases, most both sides in those cases do do that type of research and you could you know frankly if you don't do it you're at a disadvantage and where both mm -hmm. sides have equal resources and have access to that information uh, more information is better frankly well you Sean you can't talk about necessarily what the government did but you can talk about what skilling did because you actually made the point on cross-examination in what was a uh, relatively effective, if not another sideshow to some extent, uh, in, in your cross of skilling. Yeah, the 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 defense in um, in the Enron case spent more money than any case I have ever been involved in. In fact, it's publicly reported that uh, skilling alone, uh, throughout the course of his representation in in all the Enron-related matters, has spent close to seventy million dollars in in legal fees. And one of the things that he used was a jury consultant who was there most days during uh, the trial and um, he made a mistake uh, during his testimony in meeting with uh, the woman who was who we knew to be his jury consultant uh, and on cross-examination I was asking about some insider trading and had asked whether he had tipped certain family members to 
to the fact that something was wrong at Enron, and he came back from a break after that and said, I was talking to my brother over the break, and he got, you know, he got mad at me for not telling him when to sell Enron stock, trying to make a joke out of the point I had made. And I then jumped on that and said, well, Mr. Skilling, your brother wasn't the only one you consulted with over the break, was it? And he said, well, what do you mean? I said, you consulted with your lawyer, didn't you? And he said, yes, I did. And then I walked slowly to the back of the room and stood behind a woman, and I said, and you also consulted with this woman. And he said, yes. And I said, why don't you tell the jury who this woman is? And the jury, who pays attention to all that goes on, turned towards her, and he said, that's our jury consultant. And I said, and tell the jury what she does. And he says, she helps me make my answers words to the effect of more truthful. And I said, Mr. Skilling, you're not telling this jury that your answers aren't truthful. And he goes, well, I'm sorry, she helps me explain complicated topics to the jurors. And then I put up her website on the um, on the board and had him read that she has you know witness testimony coaching and things of that nature and it was it was certainly not the seminal moment in the trial but it was a it was an it was it was worthwhile showing the jury that people do use these types of consultants to help both um, now, did your did your opposition did the defense lawyers then uh, demonstrate that your side was doing the same. Well, what uh, Mr. Petricelli did is he said, because uh, I'll have no objection as long as we can put the government person's website up there. But there wasn't any evidence of that in the record or in trial. But it was a rhetorical flourish that he tried to do. But the uh. jurors, I think, were interested. And in this case, it was very interesting because throughout the trial, this woman was there, and it was somebody who the defense lawyers consulted with almost more frequently than their own colleagues throughout the trial because they worked and adjusted how they were trying the case based on how they perceived the jury was uh, was listening to people and they would cut short lines of questioning and frankly any good lawyer does that all right it's something that we all do we watch a jury and if their eyes are glazing over or if they are falling asleep during a particular moment in time of testimony we're not going to continue hitting that theme. It's clearly not resonating with the jury. And so that's something that I think is worth doing, and it helps you emphasize what points work and what points don't. Well, it begins to sound as if um, the thing that I started uh, the program with, namely <clears throat> the quotation that uh, our producer dug up uh, from Robert Frost, that a jury is 12 persons chosen to decide who has the better lawyer, needs to be amended a little bit. Who has the better lawyer and the better jury consultant? Or the most resources. Or the most resources. That's but how you get the better lawyers and the better consultants. It's one way, yeah. I, I think there's a big problem with the, with the jury consultants, of course, because they're phenomenally expensive, and obviously the government can afford them in certain cases, and well-heeled defendants and civil litigants can afford them in, in other cases, but of course ordinary people cannot, and they do... I think, tilt the playing field tremendously. Uh, of course, lots of things tilt the playing field, and uh, you can only remedy some of them. Well, I, I, and I, I disagree a little bit. I'm not sure they tilt the playing field tremendously, and I'm not sure that a lot of the value can't be gotten for a much less expensive means. And, and for instance, 
one way that you can do uh, a jury simulation or a mock trial to kind of get a mm -hmm. feel for what themes work and what themes don't, which is the service that the jury uh, consultant provides, is to do something like that in-house using uh, temporary employees that, that come from an agency that charges very little money for focus groups over the telephone or, or in, a, in a kind of less formal way where you can still get a read for the ideas of, uh, out of like Sean said, the thousand permutations of a way to put on a case, which themes work and resonate better than others without spending $70 million dollars uh, or, or whatever it is to hire the the most glamorous jury consultant who did the O.J. Simpson case and every other. But you've just revealed another aspect of the further evolution of uh, of litigation practice at high levels in this country, namely that you essentially run mock trials in advance to test out your arguments and to develop your presentation strategies. I, I think that's true. I think that's done uh, with all parties, with almost Blackstone all didn't do that, did he? Daniel Webster didn't do that. <laughs> well, well, different but, trials. But what they may have done is what a lot of us do. Um, you talk to, you know, I've got a, a seven-year-old nephew, and maybe I'll try and explain something to him to see if he understands it. I've got, you know, friends who are not in the law at all, mm -hmm. who you explain something to, and they'll look at you like you're crazy. You can do things on that level, and you shouldn't make it too scientific. This is fascinating stuff, and we've got some commercials coming. But after that, in a brief newscast, we go back to the Bible, to lawyers' poker, and dig out one or two more points. A little bit later on, we'll be on to the phones, and we would love to hear from some lawyers. Though you don't have to be a lawyer to give us a call. But if you are a lawyer and you want to get in on this, do by all means. 591-7200, the number as ever, 591-7200. The lines are now open, and we shall return after this. And we return to Chris Lind, partner at the law firm of Barlett Beck, Herman, Palanchar, and Scott, uh, who has worked uh, as well at the United States Department of Justice in their antitrust division. And in that capacity, he uh, worked on the government's case against Microsoft a few years ago. Sean Berkowitz is just recently back as assistant U.S. attorney uh, for the Northern District of Illinois uh, from a special assignment given him. Uh, namely the prosecution of the leading Enron defendants, namely Lay and Skilling. And Stephen Lubet, professor of law at Northwestern, director there of the program on advocacy and professionalism, uh, is the author of the wonderful new book, Lawyer's Poker, 52 Lessons That Lawyers Can Learn From Card Players. And this reads, this is a great entertainment, whatever else it is. Well, thank you. I'm sure it'll work, in fact, for young lawyers or even for older lawyers who want to improve their technique. But for those who just look on as lay persons with an interest in these matters, whether your interest begins in poker or in law, and I think my interest is as much in poker as it is in law, that's just wonderful fun reading this and finding those analogies. In poker, one of the great uh, techniques that some top poker players talk about is learning how to read the tells of your opponent. There are some things that a guy does, but he doesn't know that he does, when he's got a good or a bad hand, when he's drawn a card that he needs or when he's drawn a card that uh, screws him up, uh, and when he's got a winning hand or a losing hand, uh, thus when he's bluffing or when he's uh, playing it straight. Uh, are there tells that one uses in the courtroom itself? Tells are, uh, that's an aspect of poker that's harder to, to translate into yeah. the courtroom because reading tells at the card table really depends on knowing the other players. Mm -hmm. You sit with them for hours and you play hand after hand after hand and, and you learn their tells. Uh, usually in court, you know, it's one time only. 
you cross-examine a witness once, you don't ever see him again. So it, it's harder uh, to develop that skill. But there's a very famous example. And that, that occurred in the, in the O.J. Simpson case uh, when F. Lee Bailey was cross-examining Mark Furman, uh, the police detective. And uh, at, at the time, everybody thought that Bailey's cross-examination had been terrible. <clears throat> if you read the newspapers the next day, it was Bailey fails to shake Furman. Mm -hmm. You know, Furman stands up under cross-examination, but Bailey had spotted a tell. And it went like this. He was cross-examining Furman, and he said, now, detective, have you ever used the N-word? He didn't say the N-word, but I'm not going to say it. So he said, did you ever use the N-word? Furman said, absolutely not. Not in the last 10 years have you used that word? No. You've never called anybody by that name? No, I haven't. Right? And it, it looked like Furman had really rebuffed him. Bailey saw something in Furman's answer. And he went back and he said to his colleagues, he's lying. And that's when they actually began the research that led to the discovery of the audio tapes mm -hmm. with Furman saying it over and over and over again. They brought it into court. And of course, that just eviscerated the prosecution. But the point was, they didn't have those tapes when Bailey did the cross-examination. Bailey was looking for an opening. What was, the what was the liar's tell that he discerned? Well, you know, he says in his memoir, he says, I saw something. Uh -huh. And uh, he kept it to himself. And that's, of course, another lesson. If you spot a man's tell, you never give it away. Mm -hmm. Give us another law from a liar's poker. Or another guide for lawyers who don't play poker. Well... We talked before about influencing your opponent's behavior, mm -hmm. right? And I and there is a uh, a technique in poker called semi-bluffing, where you act as though you have you have the cards, and you don't really have them, but you're pretty sure you can mm -hmm. get them. So it's sort of a semi-bluff. You're not betting on nothing, but your hand isn't complete. You're betting on a probability. You're betting on a probability, and uh, there's a. An example of that from one of the greatest trials in Anglo-American legal history, the trial of Oscar Wilde in oh. uh, 1896. Right? Oscar Wilde was a great poet and playwright, the most literate man in London in his age, so witty that his you know, epigrams uh, survive to this day. And he, was, uh, he had brought a uh, defamation action against uh, Lord Queensberry, mm -hmm. who had called him a sodomite. Lord Queensberry was the father of uh, Alfred Douglas, who was Wilde's lover. That's right. And Queensberry is very upset. Douglas was in his 20s and Wilde was in his 40s and had attempted to, to uh, break them up. And he called Wilde a sodomite. And Wilde, against all advice, sued Queensberry for, uh, for defamation. And Queensberry is a wealthy man. He was a lord of the realm. And he engaged investigators... And to, jury consultants. Well, he didn't have any jury consultants. Um, but he did have Sir Edward Carson, who was one of the great cross-examiners of all time. This, this, by the way, the trial was the next week. So you, you guys take years to prepare for trial. Edward Carson took a week to prepare for cross-examining Oscar Wilde. So they sent out um, uh, investigators who discovered young men with whom, who, who said at least that they'd had uh, sex with Wilde, but it wasn't at all clear that these guys were going to come into court to testify in a civil case because, of course, they would be admitting to a crime, uh, gross indecency. 
nonetheless, Carson uh, cross-examined Wild as though the witnesses were going to come to court, right? Without knowing whether he was going to able to do it or not. Well, there was one particular rent boy they called him named Walter Granger, um, and so the first question was, "You hang out with all these young boys, don't you, Mr. Wild?" Well, yes, I do. Isn't that odd? They're working-class youths below your station. And Wild said, "I don't care a fig for." Uh, for position in, in life. I like young men because they're so interesting and alive, and I don't believe in the class structure. So then Carson says, well, were you on familiar terms with Granger, Wild? What do you mean by familiar terms? I mean to say, did you have him dine with you, Wild? Never in my life. It's really trying for you to ask me such a question. No, of course not. He waited on me at table. He did not dine with me says Wilde. Well, Carson says, well, I thought you might have asked him to sit down. You said you knew no, drew no distinctions. You said you were democratic. Right? He's undermining Wilde terrifically. And Wilde says, well, it's a different thing. If it's people's duty to serve, it's their duty to serve. If it's their pleasure to dine, it's their pleasure to dine. And that's their privilege. Well, of course, he undermined himself tremendously. And then Carson moves in for the kill. Did you ever kiss him? Wild. Oh, no, never in my life. He was a peculiarly plain boy. Carson hears his opening. He was what? Wild. I said I thought him unfortunately, his appearance, he was so very unfortunately ugly. I mean, I pitied him mm -hmm. for it. He was ugly? Yes. Do you say that in support of your statement that you never kissed him? Well, of course, the implication is that Wild would have kissed a handsome boy, and it wasn't very long after that before Wilde's lawyer convinced him to throw in the towel, and they never called Granger to the stand. And Wilde went to prison. Went Wilde eventually went to prison. Went he to Reading Jail, about which he wrote a great poem. Letters from the Reading Jail. Yeah. Now, what remind me, what point does that illustrate? It's a fascinating that dialogue. That was semi-bluffing. Semi-bluffing. Playing the hand as though you've got the cards, even though you don't. Chris Lynn, what does that bring to mind from your own practice? Well, it brings to mind an interesting point, which is there's a difference between the semi-bluff and the bluff, and that's maybe a big difference between poker and uh, the trial law, despite all the similarities, which is it's expected, acceptable, encouraged to bluff or essentially lie in poker, and you can't win without doing it. On the other hand, in trial practice, you've got, as Sean pointed out, with the credibility of, of skilling, credibility is everything. And the first lie or, or bluff that you get actually caught in, should you try to do that in front of the fact finder, the jury or judge, uh, it's going to ruin your credibility and you're going to lose. Well, no, wait a so, minute. Do you, do, does, does the lawyer, whether prosecutor or defense lawyer, does the lawyer never bluff? I think the Is there bluff, no equivalent in, in at, courtroom practice? At trial in the courtroom practice, I think you find a lot of the semi-bluffing. That is, as Sean said, holding up the document and asking the question as if you've got the impeaching material in the document or the deposition transcript. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's different from telling something or giving the impression, I think, that something is true that is actually not true. Because if you do the latter and you get caught in the latter, uh, or a witness, or well, a even lawyer, if you don't get caught, Chris. Well, I, I understand, but I, it's not. Aside from the ethical no, implications, no, no, nothing it, is aside. It, it's it's a stupid trial strategy as well. But I would think that a, a kind of semi-bluff you you would do is to intimate to um, to the person you're examining, to the person 
in the witness chair that you know stuff that you yet don't really know or that you've got documentation that you don't really have yeah. to intimate not to outright lie and say that you do yes and no although you yes and no although the, the reality is that if you do that and you don't have a good faith basis for doing it that's improper both from an ethical standpoint uh -huh. and from a proof standpoint if you say isn't it true sir that you you know that you shot somebody on this day at this time if you're bluffing and have no idea maybe you'll hit a home run and he did it but if not you look like a fool in front of the jury and if you have no good faith basis you can be censured for asking that question uh... and so there's a distinction and i think that the importance is you may have really good inferential evidence in other words you may have a series of facts that you believe point to a certain conclusion and you can bring the person through those facts uh... and and walk them through that and hope that they give you the conclusion now chris and sean and even steve confession is good for the soul uh... what's can you offer us a significant occasion when you absolutely flubbed it when you made a basic mistake in strategy and uh... essentially if you didn't lose the whole case, at least we're worried that you might. I'll go first. Uh, the, and it's a point that's in, in Steve's book, both as a witness and a lawyer, that, uh, or a poker player, which is the tilt, mm -hmm. which is uh, getting so deep, at least the way I describe it in the practice of law, getting so deep into something that's not going well that it causes you to make recurring and repeated mistakes in order to hopefully get to something at the end of the road. And I think all of us uh, have certainly done that, at least maybe not with a case, but I have a couple uh, memories in mind of a witness where you, I was examining, cross-examining a witness, an expert witness in Houston in a patent infringement case concerning uh, the productivity of oil and gas wells. And he was a polished witness. He had uh, testified the day before in the courtroom next door and was testifying the day after in another courtroom down the hall, and that's what he did for a living, and he was good at it. And you could see, uh, at least in hindsight, that as this progressed through 15 minutes, through a half an hour, through an hour, that the, the examination was not going well and it wasn't going to get any better. But I had my plan and I had my points I thought I, I could make and kept going after them. And instead of uh, a productive cross-examination, you dig yourself into a deeper hole because you're on tilt. Uh, and you need to know when to jump ship and cut your losses, uh, and that's something that's very hard to do. You need to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. Know when to fold them, exactly. <laughs> there, are, there are certainly examples where you buy too much into a witness, and you've got a witness who is telling you something, and you, and you believe them, and you don't run down the facts, and you just assume what they tell you at face value. And I've had a couple of occasions in my career where that's happened. You get caught, and the witness is exposed, and that's the way the system ought to work. Uh, and you learn from that when you're a young lawyer that no matter what the witness tells you, you make sure that you run it down and you corroborate it. Especially. Give, give us an example. Um, a uh, cooperating witness in uh, a drug case, for example, who tells you, I had a call on this day with this person. Uh, and you elicit that testimony. You've got various things that corroborate it. And it turns out that the defense lawyer has phone records from the phone from which he said he mm -hmm. called. And on that day, there was no call. And that really hurts the credibility of the witness. And that's something that a good young lawyer and any good lawyer ought to be able to find. Anything that's provable, you ought to run to ground. 
Gentlemen, we are due for some commercials, and it is time to give a serious invitation to all who are listening to join us with questions and or comments and stories. Certainly, all lawyers who are listening are invited to join in, particularly if your law practice does involve litigation and negotiation. 591-7200, the number, but you don't have to be a lawyer to give us a call. Whatever your interest is, uh, whatever your profession is, so long as you are uh, interested in this subject and have a question to raise, or for that matter, a, uh, uh, a courtroom incident to tell. You don't have to have been a lawyer. You may have been a defendant. 591-7200. The lines are now open. 591-7200. Get your calls in quickly. and We hope to get to you directly after some coming commercials. Also, a quick word to our Internet listeners who are scattered across the globe. If you want to join us from Hong Kong or from Johannesburg uh, and would rather not make a very long-distance phone call. The way to get through is by email. The email address, extension720 at tribune.com. Extension 720, as one word, at tribune, T-R-I-B-U-N-E, dot com, or 591-7200. We will be with you directly after this. And we go directly to your calls after a quick reintroduction of our guests. They are Steve Lubet, professor of law at Northwestern, who's done a fine new book, which is sort of the basis for our discussion tonight. It is titled Lawyer's Poker, 52 Lessons That Lawyers Can Learn from Card Players. And it is just published by Oxford University Press. Chris Lind is partner at the law firm of Barlett, Beck, Herman, Palanchar, and Scott. And Sean Berkowitz is an assistant U.S. attorney working under Patrick Fitzgerald in the Northern District of Illinois, though he was recently assigned uh, and spent a lot of time, a few years, I believe, on the to the Enron case and the uh, courtroom, uh, the trial of it all, down in Houston. And we know how that turned out uh, and the verdict that was delivered only recently. 591-7200 is our number. As we go to the first caller, good evening. You're on the air. Good evening. Yes, sir. Uh, I wanted to ask Mr. Berkowitz, I believe he was a defense attorney for several years before he was a prosecutor. Now, how did that affect his role as a prosecutor, uh, both how he felt about prosecuting and how it involved his trial strategy? Well, my, my role as a defense attorney, I think, humanized for me the individuals who we prosecute um, on the side of the government. It made me realize, and I think all good prosecutors realize, that actions we take have consequences for real people uh, and real individuals. And so it makes you think twice about um, charging somebody with a crime because it's a very serious accusation. It also uh, helps understand what defense strategies are in terms of what they're trying to do and what they're attempting to do, and it helps you kind of understand the enemy, so to speak, in, in the sense of who your opponent is and what they may be thinking. So it, it was a very valuable experience from a, from a personal standpoint uh, and also from a professional one. Well, thank you very much. We thank you, sir, for the call, 591-7200. Now one or two lines available. If you're trying to reach us, try again quickly, and you may well get through. And here is the next. Hello, you're on the air. Yes, this is very uh, fortuitous. Um, I'm just actually coming home from my first rehearsal. I'm an actor, and I'm playing a district attorney. And so I was wondering if your guests could help me in um, a little question I had. When I'm presenting my witnesses in my case, I know the old adage about never asking a question you don't know the answer to. 
But should I be very matter-of-fact with my witnesses? Um, should I be asking these questions in simply an effort to get the information out? Or should I already be beginning to play the jury as well and sound interested in their testimony? Or should I be very matter-of-fact in presenting my case? All of the above. Yeah, it, it, I think that the, the answer is, is all of the above. The, the most important thing to remember as a prosecuting attorney is the witness is the story. You don't want to become the story. You want to focus it on your witness, but you also want to be interested in what they're saying. You don't necessarily want to have a monotone. You want to change the pace of your questions, sometimes a little bit longer, sometimes a little bit shorter, so that you are interested in what they are saying and watching the jury to make sure they know what's going on. But ultimately, your witness on direct examination is the person whom the jury cares about and who is the real story. You know, I'm suddenly uh, thinking, or rather asking myself, who were the great actor lawyers? That is, the great uh, lawyers in film and television, but particularly in film, uh, uh, as portrayed by uh, skilled actors. Which well, Spencer Tracy, of course, did Clarence Darrow in Inherit, in the, Inherit Wind. the Wind. Yes, he did. And uh, Henry Fonda did Abraham Lincoln. And the young sure? Lincoln. And Gregory Peck uh, was Atticus Finch. Quite right. What was that one about the rape case in Michigan? Oh, uh, Anatomy of a Murder. Anatomy of a Murder. George, George Scott was the prosecutor in that one, I think, was he not? Right. George C. Uh, Scott and then Jimmy Stewart was. Jimmy Stewart. Uh, Jimmy Stewart, right. None, none of which compare to Joe Pesci and my cousin Vinny, though, <laughs> which is the best portrayal of a lawyer. Why, Why is it? It, it, it is, and Steve talks about this in his book a, a little bit, the, the movie is obviously a comedy and, and funny and, and uh, unbelievable from the standpoint of what, mm. what the lawyer does, Pesci's character, but at the same time shows a, a bunch of valuable lessons and almost real-life lessons about uh, treating witnesses, about uncovering facts, about uh, cross-examination that apply in the real world. Yeah, Joe Pesci... Uh changes pace. That's the, the, the great thing about it when he's cross-examining the witnesses. Actually, I have a couple of anecdotes about that in the book, how he treats uh, some witnesses very respectfully because they deserve respect, and other witnesses who are clearly pushing the envelope, mm -hmm. he treats them with, uh, with some disregard. But uh, for our actor friend, uh, <laughs> the, the key lesson there is there isn't a moment when Pesci treats anything as though it's not the most important thing in the world. And, and that's the great talent uh, of any lawyer. By the way, in this play, uh, what is the, uh, who's being accused of what? Well, the play is uh, by Ayn Rand. It's uh, called The, uh, the Night of uh, January 16th. Oh, really? Yes. And, um, and so basically, there's a, it's a co somewhat convoluted, but, a, but the woman on trial is, um, is, uh, is accused of murdering um, her lover. And there's a, a big scandal involved in terms of, um, uh, you know, money being embezzled and is he really dead and was there a fake body? So it's a very kind of complex. And you, and uh, you are prosecuting her. And I'm prosecuting. So I'm, I'm you know, because she starts to tell several different stories and uh -huh. changes her testimony. And so that's why I'm wondering initially uh, when I'm trying to get the initial facts out, because later then I do have to begin to attack her story. And that's when you can be a little bit more uh, flamboyant and and let some of your personality come in because on cross-examination you want to be the story and you want to be dictating the pace and the direction and control the courtroom. 
Yeah, I just I guess my biggest question was how much, and I think it was a great advice about let the witness be the story, because that is the one thing that I, I didn't want to over overplay the hand too much, as you were saying earlier, by by being too flourishy with gestures or too flamboyant, because I'm, I, I assume that I'm waiting them to be the key uh, disseminators of the facts. Exactly. And if you have a witness who, for whatever reason, doesn't have the personality, you may need to do things to spice it up in terms of asking with some inflection when there's an important question, because sometimes you get witnesses who, no matter how wonderful their testimony is substantively, just on a personality level, are very, very dry. And you need to, to realize and recognize that. And if they're not carrying it, you need to do what you can to make it interesting to the jury. To sort of flag that to let them know that it's important. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Glad we've heard Very from you. Very good. I appreciate it. I hope, I hope I win the case. Well, I hope, we've, <laughs> <laughs> I hope we've been of some help with regards to shaping you your sell performance. The house. <laughs> and we are going to pause just quickly uh, in a moment. First, again, an invitation for any and all to give us a call, 591-7200. I want to hear from some real lawyers, among others. 591-7200 and uh, 312, the area code, if you're calling long distance. If you're at a great distance over the Internet, you can reach us via email, the email address, extension 720 at tribune.com. This also applies to those who've been defended by or prosecuted by lawyers. Have you been properly served by such lawyers? Uh, any stories you've got along those lines, we'd be happy to have. And we will go directly to the newsroom and to Paula Cooper. And about Steve Lubet's fine new book, it's amusing as well as edifying. Lawyers Poker, 52 Lessons That Lawyers Can Learn From Card Players. Here's what one of our old friends has to say. Uh, he was on our program only, I think, within the last month or two. Alan Dershowitz, uh, Felix Frankfurter Professor of Law at Harvard, of course, uh, who says, Lubet deals a winning hand with this entertaining and creative approach to gamesmanship. Anyone who negotiates, strategizes, or bluffs, and who doesn't, will benefit from this great read. You, don't, you won't be able to keep a poker face when you read this funny and informative book. And uh, is Dershowitz a great uh, trial manipulator, would well, you say? Dershowitz is mostly an appellate lawyer, and he's yeah. probably the greatest appellate lawyer, or one of the greatest appellate lawyers uh, of our if time. If you've been convicted, call Alan. Well, if you've yeah. been convicted or if you're trying to defend a verdict, he, he's, he's really outstanding at it. He was in on the O.J. Simpson case, as I remember it. He was uh, involved in the uh, Simpson case. He was involved in the Mike Tyson case. Mm -hmm. uh, Betty Loren Maltese. Betty Loren Maltese. Trying to get her off? Uh, trying to overturn the verdict, yes. He represented yeah. her on appeal, I think he and his brother Nathan. He didn't win on that one. No. Uh, we go back to the phones, 591-7200, and you are on the air. Good evening. Good evening, Milt. Uh, yes, sir. Thank you very much. Uh, I really uh, like your program. I wonder if the lawyers could comment on the rationale for requiring all 12 jurors to either agree on a guilty or not guilty verdict, and if we would be better served by a simple majority. And uh, even the Supreme Court uh, judges can't agree uh, normally on any on any subject. So I just wonder... Well, if they could comment on that. A very interesting question. In Western jurisprudence, generally, must you always have a unanimous verdict from a jury? No, you don't always have to have a unanimous verdict. Uh, it's actually a matter of statute from state to state, and uh, a number of states allow 11 to 1, 10 to 2, even hmm. 9 to 3. 
uh, verdicts in in felony cases. Uh, it's a question for the legislature. I, I don't think any state has ever gone below nine to three for a felony conviction, and it's not clear that the due process clause would allow that. But unanimous mm. verdicts uh, are, are a question of statutory law. Isn't it true also that in many of the European systems there's virtually no jury trial as such? In every European system there's no jury trial, save uh, uh, the United Kingdom. Yeah. Uh, and actually there has been a movement, I shouldn't have said that, because there's a movement back to juries uh, in some of the European countries. Uh, Italy, for example, instituted juries within the last 10 years after about 100 years without them. Mm -hmm. So there uh, is actually some emulation of the Anglo-American system uh, in countries uh, that didn't have them. Russia, again, is another example. Uh, after years of dictatorship, one of the first democratizing changes was the reintroduction of the jury system. Uh, Chris and Sean, does your style differ when you go up just before a sitting judge without a jury? Sure it does. I, I think that um, you play to your audience and uh, a judge may be more inclined to, to listen to legal arguments mm -hmm. that might confuse a jury. Uh, you may also be able to do away with some of the rhetorical flourish or some of the the um, more emotional appeals that, that you can make with a jury. And with a, with a judge, you want to pick your best argument typically, and the judge a lot of times will dictate uh, what he or she is interested in. In the, in the Enron case, we actually had both a judge and a jury trial. After the jury convict, or after we finished the jury trial, we tried Mr. Lay separately on four counts of bank fraud that we tried specifically to Judge Lake. Uh, that case was, was a simpler case, but took three days. The arguments were much shorter. The lawyers behaved differently in terms of uh, the questions that they asked the, the um, witnesses, largely because the judge had seen a lot of the, those issues before, and he didn't need to, to bring him up to speed on them. Uh, when Mr. Lay testified in that case, he was on the stand for uh, half a day, as opposed to the uh, probably six days that he was on in the major case. Mm. Uh, Chris Lynn. Yeah, I think you try a case very differently for a couple of different reasons. One is different arguments appeal to a judge versus a jury often. An another reason is that not in every case, but with a case like, like Sean had, for instance, with Judge Lake, the judge has been living with the case for years at some times and not on a daily basis but is very familiar with the facts familiar with the issues etc and doesn't need all the foundational build-up to to hear the whole story of the case there's also the jurors get bored very fast and you need to keep their attention and be a little bit more uh, riveting and interesting uh, in to keep their attention and, and so that they don't lose interest in the case our thanks to that caller we pause for the usual reasons and directly back to your calls on 591-7200 after this. And directly back to Lubetsch, Lind, and Berkowitz. That could be a law firm in itself. The names have a proper ring. And back to the phone calls, 591-7200. Good evening, you're on the air. Yes, I'd like to recommend a thought-provoking movie, which unfortunately has been reduced to a DVD in a paper envelope obtained by cereal box coupons it deserves more attention than that 12 angry men oh yes begin beginning with uh, all 12 jurors voting guilty and ending in a way that i won't disclose because it might spoil the movie but it deals with a lot of interesting issues um we've had law and order and it's been off for many a year we've had judge judy for i guess many a year and we had just legal for three episodes 
Uh, I'd like to ask any panel member who wants to answer which which of our television representations gives us the most accurate portrayal and which ones would they not recommend yeah there are a number of leading tv shows which are essentially law firm shows always uh leading to a great denouement in the courtroom which ones are accurate uh, i don't know that any are, are entirely accurate because it's difficult to to reduce a trial to an hour-long program i certainly enjoyed watching law and order and it, it gave some thought-provoking topics and I think dealt with a lot of the ethical and and practical issues that we deal with. I, I haven't really watched many of the others and so I don't think I'm a good person to, to talk about that. I don't, I don't watch much television I'm afraid but I would say that um, the best courtroom books are the books by Scott Turow. Uh-huh. Who has been a prosecutor for many years. He was a prosecutor here. He's now a partner yeah. in a law firm. But I think if you want to get at the sort of underlying dynamic of trials, his books mm -hmm. really get right to it. A show like Law and Order, one thing that it does teach that I think is realistic is that you have to boil your arguments and your themes down to what literally turns out in Law and Order to be a 30-second to 60-second closing argument. And that is, that's something that if you can learn to do that, uh, you're a more effective advocate, and that teaches that, that lesson. As far as lawyer personalities, probably something like Boston Legal, where they're all uh, goofy eccentrics is more accurate. Oh, yes. What about the Judge Judy type shows? I, I certainly, I, I, I haven't seen anything like that in, in federal court. And if you get a chance, you should go down to, to 219 South Dearborn. There are always some real-life trials going on, some of which are pretty interesting. Oh, I want to recommend another book as long as we're on the subject. Mm -hmm. Courtroom 302. Uh, by Steve Bogaira, who is a Chicago journalist. It's a year in the life of a courtroom in the criminal courts building in Chicago. R really terrific book. And our thanks to that caller. We go directly to another. On 5917200, you are on the air. Good evening. Excellent show as always, Mel. Thank you. Question uh, for your uh, esteemed uh, panel there. Why should we feel uh, the benefit of the O.J. Simpson trial where the scientific evidence was at a minimum of 57 billion to one to 150 billion to one that OJ killed two people and that he was able to afford a jury consultant who asked an extensive questionnaire and then selected individuals who had no science background or very little or didn't even complete high school and then sat on a jury of 12 of his peers uh, and then couldn't understand the evidence other than the fact that the glove didn't fit and Furman was a racist, uh, negating the if it scientific data. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Yeah, that just goes into the reactive mind of the jurors. Yeah. That doesn't come back to the hard fact that 57 billion to one, that's, that's nine and a half planet Earths. And I wonder what would have happened if Marsha Clark had come in there with nine basketballs each as an Earth and said that's the odds to one that O.J. butchered two humans. Well, how is our society served as a better because you made a mockery of yeah. the judiciary it, system. It is the ultimate test of the legitimacy of defense uh, tactics when they are cynically performed by uh, well-paid lawyers who will do just about anything. Absolutely, inclu including disrupting her during her closing arguments. She should have stood up and told the uh, judge in this particular case that they're disrupting the people of California. You know, I, I wonder what would have happened if they had gotten yeah. a a professional prosecutor, not her, maybe Berkowitz, or who was the gentleman from San Francisco who has written several books? Um, I'm, his name escapes me at the moment. 
uh, who K.O. Hallinan. Uh, another gentleman. He's a he, but he's one. Yeah. He he. Never well, sir, you you posed it nicely. Let's get some response from the panel. Well, I mean, I, I think that it's unfortunate any time there's a situation where the public doesn't feel that the justice system has worked because that hurts the integrity of the overall system. But it is worth it is worth remembering that the the tenet of our justice system is that better that a thousand guilty people go free than one innocent man serve time behind bars. And sometimes, uh, given our constitution and given the benefits that defendants get in criminal courts to which they're constitutionally entitled, there are going to be situations well, where... Illinois is a prime example, you know. We executed, we believe, one innocent person here, and we had 26 people on death row, of which 13 was then found to be exonerated by DNA. We have then a Carrico case, which is a scary case, because you got now a man who's running on the Republican Party for the, the underchair for the governorship. If that individual wins, he had hard DNA evidence that was found on the body of this Nicarico child that would have exonerated two people that he twice used the legal system in DuPage County to try to assassinate people when the DNA would have proved... Sir, are you a, may I ask you, please, are you a lawyer? No. Are you involved with the guys up at Northwestern who no. are concerned with these matters? No, I listen to your show. I get right. educated by your... <laughs> Great that's, education. That's where you've learned everything you know. We thank you for the call, and I fear we must pause right now. Uh, we're late for some commercials, and here they are. And it would not be amiss to yet once again introduce or reintroduce our guests. They are Sean Berkowitz of the um, uh, of the Federal Attorney's Office here in the Northern District of Illinois, who was the main prosecutor and the man who ran the case against the uh, two leading defendants for Enron down in Houston. The case only recently concluded, and doubly concluded for Mr. Lay. Uh, Charles Lind is partner at the law firm of Barlett Beck, Herman Palanchar, and Scott, uh, and previously worked in the U.S. Department of Justice in their antitrust division. Steve Lubet is professor of law at Northwestern, director of the program on advocacy and professionalism, teaches courses on legal ethics, trial advocacy, pretrial litigation and negotiation, and writes books. Uh, writes books every... A new one appears about every two years, I would say. And the new one is... Lawyer's Poker, 52 Lessons That Lawyers Can Learn from Card Players. Wonderful read, in fact, and just published by Oxford University Press. And we go quickly back to the phones. You are on the air. Good evening. Uh, good evening. Uh, I'd like your uh, panelists' comments on uh, two issues. Uh, the first, um, when a after the lawyers are done trying the case and it goes to the jury, there is no real way of accounting for the jury's decision-making process. Um, that's the first issue. And the second issue is uh, it seems to me uh, unfair to the jurors, particularly in these uh, you know, months-long mega-trials, that they have to you know, put their lives on hold uh, to participate in these trials. So uh, those are the two issues. Well, I'll answer the first one, and then maybe Sean will comment uh, on, on the other. The uh, jury ideal is that the jury room is a proverbial black box, uh, that once the jury retires to the room, there's uh, no outside influence. They deliberate however they want to deliberate, and pretty much uh, their decision is a sacrosanct uh, once it's made. There are a few uh, 
legal changes about that, a few things that can be done, but it's hard to, un to imagine how else a jury could operate. Once you allow any sort of outside influence, uh, then they're no longer independent, and the whole idea of a jury is that they're going to be independent. I had a colleague once at the University of Chicago uh, who was denounced in Congress for bugging the jury room. Fred Strodebeck uh, was a social psychologist, as I am. He was there, uh, and this happened before I came to the University of Chicago. He had permission by, on the part of some judges in provincial courtrooms to bug the jury rooms because the interest was in the nature of jury deliberation. So this was part of a research project with federal funding. Once it was revealed, uh, everything hit the fan, to say the least. And uh, the University of Chicago was very upset because they were being denounced for allowing this sort of research and were denounced, as I say, from the floor, I think, of both the Senate and the House. I think they had a program like that recently in the state of Arizona. Where Run by my colleague, by Sherry, Sherry Diamond, Diamond yeah. Yeah. Who, who had, where they had cameras in real trial so jury it, deliberations, so, so you it actually got to see it. Right, it was approved by the court, and then the lawyers in each individual case would have to agree, mm -hmm. and the jurors all agreed. And and they, it's the most comprehensive study of juror behavior. Is that a fact? an interesting television program for all of It was. <laughs> in, in answer to the, to the second question about people putting their lives on hold, I think serving on a jury is certainly an inconvenience, but it's a constitutional right that every defendant has in a criminal case, a uh, felony case, and in, in civil courts as well. And it, it, is, it is one of the more sacred rights that's out there, and it's, it is a civic duty like so many other duties. And I, I think that if you talk to people who have served on a jury for any length of time, they feel better for having done that. And if they are truly inconvenienced in a way that alters their life, the judge has the power to let them go. Um, but most people at the end of the day can serve on a jury and feel better for having done it. And I think our society is better for having 12 peers serve on, uh, serve on those juries. I, I would agree. I mean, it, it, who, who are the people, though, who can, you know, put, you know, t take time out for six months or a year or, or whatever to, to do this? I mean, is it, is it a particular type of juror? Those cases are very unusual, of course. I mean, typ typical trial lasts about a week, and usually jurors are a pretty good cross-section of the community, mm -hmm. and often, most often, they're employed people whose employers uh, recognize the importance of serving on a jury. Retired people, students, teachers, things of that nature as well. Our thanks to the caller. Do you agree with this emailer who says, uh, with regard to the film 12 Angry Men, the trial should have ended with a mistrial. The Henry Fonda character did investigations of his own by buying a similar knife to the murder weapon. Would that be a basis for a mistrial? Yes. To the extent that you do outside research, it's certainly something that would would get a motion for a mistrial. I think that it's possible that um, that a judge wouldn't necessarily grant a mistrial in that case. But what you're not allowed to do is bring outside influences to bear on the trial. I think that he could have made the same point through a common sense argument rather than by using an actual uh, knife from outside the courtroom. Well, well, the point in the case was the ubiquity of that particular type of knife, and they were arguing that it was unique, and Henry Fonda went out to the corner and bought one and then brought it back in to prove it wasn't unique. So it's actually bringing in what we would call non-record evidence, mm -hmm. and that would be prohibited. But w once there's an acquittal, though, I don't think there can be in this trial, can there be? Government can't appeal an acquittal uh, right. from a jury, that's correct. Here's another interesting email with which we might end. Uh, 
This caller says, I just found out on the Internet that today is the 100th anniversary of the final acquittal of Alfred Dreyfus. Uh, now, this is a loaded question, but what trial would your guests consider to have been the trial of the century? I suppose the century in reference is the 20th century rather than the one we've just begun. There are many trials of the century, are there not? The O.J. Simpson was one such. The, the, the most, um, hmm, the trial of that century. I'll, I'll go a century earlier. The, the, the most important trial in the history of the United States uh, was the trial of John Brown after the raid mm -hmm. at Harper's Ferry mm -hmm. uh, because that exacerbated uh, intersectional tensions and really did play a, a precipitating role uh, in the coming Civil War. What do we know about how the trial was played? The uh, trial was scrupulously fair uh, to, to, to John Brown. Uh, he played it beautifully because uh, knowing that he had no chance of acquittal and that he was going to hang, it was really the, the first political trial in American history. And he spoke repeatedly about the injustice of slavery and his willingness to die. That made him a hero in the North. Mm -hmm. And of course, to the South, that was appalling because he was fomenting what they called servile rebellion. And it just just really uh, multiplied the fault lines. Do either of the of the other two have a favorite trial of the century? Maybe this is a, a biased uh, opinion, but certainly this century is only six years old, and there was one trial at the beginning of it that had determined the president that we've had this entire uh -huh. century, uh, which makes that a, a pretty important trial. And I don't necessarily endorse the way it came out one way or the other, but, but that was certainly an important trial to start the century. It's always been discomforting that the final Supreme Court decision was, was it a five to four or? Five to four. Yeah. By one vote, right. Which is no way to choose the president of the United States. I agree. Uh, we are out of time. Uh, unless, uh, very quickly, Sean wants to nominate another trial. I think that the, the trials at Nuremberg were fascinating, um, mm -hmm. certainly and in, in seminal in their own right. It's hard to really pick a particular moment in time, but that's one that is, a, is of great interest and obviously of great importance and I think uh, speaks to issues that even come to this day. Yes, indeed. I thank the three of you most sincerely for joining us. Our guests have been Stephen Lubit, Charles Lind, and Sean Berkowitz.